So, Ian, when you were a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? Well, there was a really long time when I thought I wanted to be a doctor, but then my uncle invited me to watch a surgery, and while seeing some scalpels inside someone's shoulder, I was like,、mm, I don't think this is for me. <laughs> I feel like every kid wants to be a doctor at some point. I think I cycled through a whole bunch of different careers, but in middle school, I was completely convinced that I wanted to be a marine biologist. Can't say that I'm surprised. Didn't you just get back from scuba diving in Indonesia? Yeah, although my dive buddies are much better at IDing fish than I am. Anyways, I ended up in neuroscience and now in communications, but I still have a soft spot for all things oceanography. And I'm guessing this ties into our guest expert today. Am I that transparent? I guess. <laughs> I mean, I've always been interested in the ocean. It's been a constant in my life when a lot of things have changed,、um, you know, dramatically and quickly. But the ocean was always there. It's one of my first memories. This is Micah Sonnenwald, an associate research scholar at Princeton. She recently visited MC as part of our long program titled "Confronting Global Climate Change." Oh, does this mean we're going to be talking about how our oceans are being impacted by climate change? You hit the nail on the head. Today, we're kicking off a collaboration with the American Geophysical Union's podcast, Third Pod from the Sun, by tackling oceanography, climate change, and how researchers like Micah use machine learning to answer some pretty hard questions. But first, introductions. I'm Sadie Witkowski, and I'm Ian Martin, and you're listening to Carry the Two. A podcast from the Institute for Mathematical and Statistical Innovation, aka MC. This is the podcast where Sadie and I talk about the real-world applications of mathematical and statistical research. We might seem like an odd couple to tackle these topics. I'm a cognitive neuroscientist, and Ian is a high school choir teacher. But for the month of May and June, we'll be narrowing our scope to mathematics and statistics in the earth sciences. That's right. We're kicking off our collaboration with Third Pod from the Sun. Each week, we'll be solving for climate by speaking with different researchers who spoke here at MC last fall. And after listening to our episode, you can go over to the Third Pod feed and hear their take on the same research. So, if you enjoy this conversation, you should check out the AGU's podcast this Friday. And don't worry, we'll make sure to link their podcast in the show notes. All right, I'm ready to dive deep on this topic. It, is that is that an ocean pun? Oh, I see what you did there. <laughs> But really, water are we talking about today? <laughs> well, let's hear from Micah. So I'm a physical oceanographer nominally, although I also do some biological oceanography, looking at the base of the food chain. But I would say the main thrust of my work is physics, where what I do is I try to overall understand. What's actually important? What processes are important in the ocean for us to be able to represent the ocean and, and you know understand the the theoretical foundations of the ocean to be able to both appreciate it and be able to predict it. So if we understand something, that means that we can predict it into the future, which of course in a climate change context is really important. So physics of oceans seems straightforward enough. Yeah, although I want to take a moment to really understand why we care about the oceans in terms of climate change, because when we're talking about global warming, I think most people's brains jump to the atmosphere and air temperature. 
Right. We look at how more CO two in the atmosphere makes our summers much warmer and our winters less snowy than in previous years. But our oceans are actually our biggest carbon sinks, and oceans do a lot to stabilize our climate patterns. The more we've been able to add the ocean to the overall system understanding, the more we've understood how important coupling the system is. And when I say coupling, I mean having the ocean, you know, for want of a better word, talk to the atmosphere, because. What the ocean and the atmosphere do is that they, for example, exchange heat and moisture. So if the ocean under here is warm and the atmosphere is cold, like what happens when you get the Arctic air coming down and you know causing a ruckus on the east on the east coast of the United States, is that you have the the ocean being able to give heat to the atmosphere when the atmosphere is colder, and vice versa. If the atmosphere is warm, it can give heat to the ocean, and How this conversation is happening is really important, both on shorter timescales, so weeks to months, for example, but also on longer timescales. But unfortunately, we don't always have all that much data on our oceans. Why is that? Well, like many problems, it's hard to collect data on such big expanses. We're very data poor to some extent in the ocean, in the sense that we have this paradoxical problem because we have lots of data from the surface. So satellites, for example, send us back these beautiful images, but to actually have data from the subsurface is really expensive and hard because you either have to send a robot or a ship. So we know a lot about the surface, but not necessarily about the deep, and that's one of those grand challenges that I've also dedicated a lot of my attention to. So are you saying our research on the ocean is only surface level at best? I'm gonna wave that weak pun through. But yes, actually, without some deep investment, it's hard to record from everywhere in the ocean, and we really do need those data because the oceans aren't static. There's constant upwelling and currents moving water around, which affects which waters are frigid and which keep warm. Right, like how the Gulf Coast side of Florida has much warmer waters than the Atlantic-facing side. Right, that's happening in part because of the movement of the Gulf Stream. But let's get back to how you start to model this stuff if you don't have all the measurements at different locations and depths. Right. So Mika and her fellow researchers help deal with this challenge through machine learning. Machine learning is one of those terms that are used a lot these days, and it can it can mean so much. And I also use it in a couple of different ways. When we look at nature, nature of course is beautiful. It surrounds us.、Um, But it's also really, really complicated, <laughs> and the climate system, of course, is no exception. The ocean is also no exception, and what I think machine learning is really incredibly good at is to help us understand and be able to to find those underlying patterns that help us understand the system, and this is something where. I favor tools from unsupervised learning, and this is just a flavor of machine learning. We've talked about machine learning before, right? Yeah, a few times at this point, with language learning with Ben Ruveni, ChatGPT with Alison Edinger, and self-driving cars with Sharon Deed, just to name a few. Yeah, I remember those conversations. But did we talk about supervised versus unsupervised? I'm not sure, but to recap the difference, supervised machine learning is when your training data, the stuff you're putting into your model, is already labeled, 
whereas with unsupervised learning, it's unlabeled. So if I was teaching a machine to tell the difference between images of a bicycle and a motorcycle, and I knew the correct label for each picture that I used in training, that would be an example of supervised machine learning. I think supervised learning is pretty intuitive, but unsupervised learning is really cool because you can use it to understand patterns. So I don't need any labels. So for deep learning, for example, you need to have the answers. So you need to say, okay, these are warm regions. That means this is going to happen, you know, and vice versa. But with unsupervised learning, you can say, okay, these regions are becoming warm because of these patterns. You know, so you can you can see the emergence of patterns and then understand them. So that's one one way that I use machine learning. Okay, but now Micah is talking about deep learning. Sure. So deep learning is another flavor of machine learning. It can be supervised or unsupervised, and it basically uses multiple layers of computing to progressively pull out high-level features from the input. Oh, like the language structure learning in ChatGPT. Bingo. And one of the things that I do with this is blend in a lot of knowledge from geophysical fluid dynamics to try and make sure that the predictions that are made are actually based and rooted in ocean theory, which gives me a really, really nice leverage in terms of making sure that the predictions that the machine learning algorithm is making are actually rooted in something that is correct. So I can effectively demonstrate that the machine learning is, is reasoning like a physicist, which I think is very important. Okay, this all sounds very smart, but I need a concrete example of how Micah is using deep learning. Fair enough.、Mm, why don't we do that after this quick break? If you're getting a lot out of the important research shared on our show, there's another University of Chicago Podcast Network show that you should check out. It's called Big Brains. Big Brains brings you the engaging stories behind the pioneering research and pivotal breakthroughs reshaping our world. Change how you see the world through research, and keep up with the latest academic thinking with Big Brains, part of the award-winning University of Chicago Podcast Network. Okie dokes. I'm ready to hear you explain how Micah is using deep learning on oceans to. Well, what is she looking at exactly? <laughs> right. So let's talk about how to combine physics with deep learning techniques by looking at the North Atlantic. So the fun thing with the North Atlantic is that we've studied it for a long time, and we have these wonderful observational arrays, and we think we have a reasonable handle on what's going on in the North Atlantic compared to other oceans where we have much fewer observations. So. Some of the things we know is that we have this very strong current that runs around the eastern side of the United States, the Gulf Stream, and the Gulf Stream is one of those really important currents that brings a lot of heat north. So this is a very important system and a very important system of of currents. And one of the things that this current does is at some point it separates from the east coast of the United States and then heads across the basin and. What I was able to do with my unsupervised machine learning tools is to take one of those really big, complicated climate models and find out 
in terms of what sets the ocean in motion, what kind of makes the Gulf Stream separate from the coast. So the Gulf Stream basically runs up the coast, but eventually breaks off? Yeah, and Micah has a great analogy for that, actually. You can think of it as the Gulf Stream sort of holding the handrail of the of the coast of the eastern United States, and then at some point kind of letting go and sort of just going across the basin. And it's that letting go process that I thought was really interesting and worth, um, <laughs> worth, worth looking into. Oh, that's fun. Like me trying to get down my apartment stairs, desperately gripping the rail when the steps are iced over in the winter. The quintessential Chicago experience. Of course, the analogy sounds simple, but the research is actually quite complex. This is one of those areas where it's just really complicated and really complex if you just look at the model fields, because there's just so many of them. There's so many things that can make the ocean move from the wind pushing against the surface to the ocean rubbing against itself. So just looking at it, we kind of know that these processes are happening, but actually being able to pinpoint, okay, this is where that transition is happening. That's harder. And that's what machine learning can help us do. And having pinpointed those boundaries, then what I was able to do with deep learning was to teach a machine to say, this is where that important thing is happening. The important thing being where the Gulf Stream releases the handrail. Yeah, and then Mike and our colleagues can compare that to what they're seeing on the actual coastline to verify or update the model, which can then be used to predict other portions of the Gulf Stream's journey. So there's this one important process that I care a lot about, and with this deep learning application, I can tell you, if you give me some sparse surface fields, I can tell you where this, this transition is happening, although it's happening in, inside the ocean. So I can't see this from the surface. And that's one of those things that is really useful in the sense that you don't have to go there and you don't even have to share big data fields because that's actually also hard. Even in the climate modeling community, it's difficult to, to look into the ocean because sometimes the data isn't shared, it's not even saved. So as an oceanographer, caring a lot about these processes can be very difficult, but with the advent of the use of deep learning, for example, I think, I think things are changing, hopefully. So as Micah said, a big challenge is always having enough data and enough high quality data. Right, we need more remote sensing in our oceans to improve our estimates. But as they wait for more and better data, they have to deal with these challenges at hand. One of the challenges is that you have to do what's called discretization. And that effectively means that you have to, if you're taking the ocean, for example, if you can imagine a globe, what you have to do is sort of chop it up into little bits. So you can think of it as if you have a photograph of a face, what you have to do is you have to pixelate it because numerically, it's just kind of what you have to do to solve these equations. Um, you know, in the, in the ocean, it's the Navier-Stokes equation plus the equation of state, so how heavy the water is. And so what you have to do is you have to you know, pixelate, <laughs> just to use that terminology. Oh my god, you finally got the jargon alert working. <laughs> okay, okay. I'm guessing you're flagging Micah's mention of the Navier-Stokes equation? That's the one. 
So I should say that it's not just one equation, like a squared plus b squared equals c squared. So I mentioned the Navier-Stokes equations, and they're the equations that describe how fluid moves. And then there's also what's called the equation of state. And that's an equation that describes how heavy seawater is. So seawater is salty, and it also has a lot of other components to it. So Navier-Stokes equations basically explain fluid mechanics? Yeah, and those equations, which fall into the category of partial differential equations, can be combined with equations of state to help deal with how not all the water Micah is modeling is equally salty. Oh, yeah, like how it's easy to float in the Dead Sea because the water is so salty that you're more buoyant by comparison. Mm-hmm. Or like when water freezes, it usually pushes the salt out of the water to form the ice. And so the surrounding water is more salty while the ice is less salty. As Michael told us, Dense water is very heavy, while water with less salt is, is lighter. And there's an equation, the equation of state, that is also very complicated, um, that, that tells us how this is happening. So for example, we talked about the, the North Atlantic Ocean um, just now, and there, one of the really important processes that happens is that you know warm water is brought north. Um, warm water is also lighter. It's brought north, made cold, so denser, but it's also made denser because um, because salt is being inserted because you're you're freezing. So so if you um, can think of ice cubes, ice cubes are very rarely salty. And this is because when you freeze water, it's sort of the salt sort of rains out effectively. So in that sense, there are a lot of processes there, right? So I talked about the ocean moving heat north and also the um, brine rejection, which is what happens when, when, um, when ice freezes. And all of these things I can talk to you about, but I also know from my physical intuition, I know from my geophysical fluid dynamics background that these things are going to happen um, and indeed, you know, I can code them in a model. Oh, so it's not just trying to make a model that looks at currents. No, you really need models that also include density and temperature and salinity. And probably other stuff we're not even thinking about right now. So, yeah, it's a math and modeling heavy field to get involved in oceanography. And it's really necessary to understand what's going on. But let's get back to discretization. Namely, what do you do when you don't have much resolution in your data? So you can imagine that if you take my face and pixelate it, if you only have five pixels to work with, um, you wouldn't really be able to see that I'm wearing glasses, for example. But if you were to use, you know, I don't know, 500 or 5,000 pixels, you could start to see details like I have freckles. And those types of things are very similar to what's hap happening in the ocean, apart from the fact that in the ocean, unfortunately, all of the things matter. So all the things you can't see matter a lot because of the way the, the equations work. So if you have small parts of physics that you're not representing, that's going to impact everything. Man, this seems like a really difficult challenge to overcome. Yeah. So while we can develop new and better models for this, the biggest leg up would be to start collecting more data so that we can see if the models are doing what we want them to. Well, that, and I assume that in the meantime, Micah is working on making better models so that they can make better predictions. I think some of, 
some things are have really been fascinating to me where we are able to get more data and put the data together in a way to give a, a more full representation of the system and or the you know the, the the ocean system and some of the really interesting things for me was just how variable everything is i just really want to hammer home how important understanding the ocean's currents are to understanding climate change more broadly Without knowing what's going on in our biggest natural heat sink and how melting ice is changing the currents, we won't be able to make useful, accurate predictions about how the climate is changing. Collecting data about the future is hard because, for definition, it's in the future. We can't really go there yet. Um, so in that sense, climate models are instrumental in being able to help us understand what might happen in the future. Well, it sounds like it's a good thing we have people like Micah on this. Micah and a whole community of researchers. Besides Micah's appointment with Princeton University, she's also affiliated with the NOAA Geophysical Fluid Dynamics Lab. And NOAA stands for National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration? Right. The Geophysical Fluid Dynamics Lab is one of the groups that we rely on to make comprehensive climate models. And that difficult work really takes a village. So... I can talk a lot about the difficulties with climate modeling, <laughs> uh, but they're they're really beautiful and just such community efforts. Um, but it is really complicated, just like the Earth system. And there's so much we don't know about the Earth system, so it's really it's really I think a community-based learning project where we're just still figuring figuring a lot out. Don't forget to check out our show notes in the podcast description for a link to Third Pod from the Sun story with Micah. We'll also link to Micah's talk on her research from the Confronting Global Climate Change program here at MC. And if you like the show, give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen. By rating and reviewing the show, you really help us spread the word about Carry the Two so that other listeners can discover us. And for more on the math research being shared at MC, be sure to check us out online at our homepage mc.institute. We're also on Twitter at mc underscore institute, as well as Instagram at mc.institute. And that's mc spelled I-M-S-I. And do you have a burning math question? Maybe you have an idea for a story on how mathematics and statistics connect with the world around us. Send us an email with your idea. You can send your feedback, ideas, and more to sadiewit at mc.institute. That's S-A-D-I-E-W-I-T- at imsi.institute. We'd also like to thank our audio engineer, Tyler Dammy, for his production on the show. And thanks to Anupama Chandrasekran, producer from AGU's Third Pod from the Sun, for their work collecting tape. And music is from Blue Dot Sessions. Lastly, Carry the Two is made possible by the Institute for Mathematical and Statistical Innovation, located on the gorgeous campus of the University of Chicago. We're supported by the National Science Foundation and the University of Chicago. I can't even see you. Water? Are you talking about? <laughs> what? <laughs> still. <laughs> okay, we finish this. Still, just like keep reading it wrong. Okay. Thinking. Dive, dive, dive. 
who's it says Worder? Worder. Worder. <clears throat> a water whale. Okay. <laughs> that was stressful. <laughs> that wasn't so... <laughs> I don't know why this is so hard. Water, you do it. I can't. <laughs> Worder. <laughs> As, some, as a fellow hard-to-pronounce last-name-haver, you'd think I'd be better about this. As a fellow human being, I like water. I mean, I, I have a favorite fluids framework. Does that count? Um, the, it's called the barotropic vorticity equation. Um, I, I really like that one. 